Today we're starting a, a whole new series of messages. Uh, we've been in the book of Nehemiah for several weeks, and so today we're going to change just a little bit. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible, that's why God gave you apps. That's what you can do. Uh, take your smartphone out. You can, you can look at an app, and you'll find a, a Bible app there somewhere. But I want you to follow along. We're going to look at the, uh, just the, the basic theme is follower. I, I mean, we just saying, today I choose to follow you. And some of you are thinking, well, I'm already a follower, so I can just kind of click out and, you know, if I could just get an earpiece in, maybe I could listen to an NFL game while he's talking or, or something like that. And I know, I mean, you're probably here because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and so we already understand what that means, or do we? Today we're just going to define the term. What does it mean to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to just define that, and we're going to look at some common misconceptions maybe that we have. Not that many weeks ago, we were in, in uh, Pflugerville, just outside of Austin. We were with our kids, and, and uh, as grandparents have been known to do, how many of your grandparents here? Raise your hand if you're a grandparent. Okay. So you understand, we went to Target. You understand. And we took the grandkids. And we said to them, you can choose one toy, and we gave them, we, we have learned over the years, this is our seventh grandchild, and so we've learned over the years to say, th these are the parameters, because if you say you can choose one toy, you know, then you take a mortgage out when you leave, you know, a second mortgage. You, you got, so we, we defined the parameters a little bit, and I said to the, and especially for Nico, who's uh, eight years old, or, or roughly or so, and, and Lincoln, who's six, and Down syndrome, and, and I said, we're going to do one toy, and immediately it's like, whoa, where do they go? And my daughter says, Dad, you don't think they know where the toy section is in Target? So I, you go back, and, and Nico at least would turn around and say, come on, Papa, come on. And we went back there, and I couldn't find Lincoln anywhere. And I was getting a little concerned since I was the one who was to have the care of this six-year-old, and he was outside of my sight, and you know, a little limited in some ways. And so I was a little concerned about that, and, and I said to Nico, where is Lincoln? He's disappeared. And he says, shh. I said, what? And he says, shh. And I could hear him listening. And you could hear, because when Lincoln plays, he has this conversation with himself. And he finds a toy, and it's like, oh, this is how you do that. You go into, and he has his own language. And he's having this whole conversation. And Nico says, I'd know that voice anywhere. Boom. And we find Lincoln. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Do we know his voice anywhere? I mean, my little grandson was tuned to his brother's voice and knew it in the midst of this busy, noisy store. He knew that voice. And in the midst of your world, do you hear his voice and follow him? I, I mean, there's a lot of voices out there. There's that voice that says, this is how you're supposed to eat. And, and everything that you've ever eaten in all of your life was wrong, so now we change it. You know, when we were growing up, Wonder Bread was a wonderful thing. And you had, you had Wonder Bread with bologna and mayonnaise, and that was a great sandwich. Today, they'll send a death squad after you if that's what you fix your kids. Right? I mean, Wonder Bread? Are you kidding me? White bread? That's just, that's an, and mayonnaise and bologna of all things? Do you know what they put in bologna? I don't want to know what they put in bologna. It's 
like knowing what you put in hot dogs. That's, that's just, you don't, and I understand, but you have this voice telling you, and you have the voice from politics telling you this is the way that you think you should think about our world, our political world, and you have these other voices. Maybe you have a voice in your family that says this is the way you should do something, or this is the way, and you have all these voices, and you have the voices from television, and you have the, I'm not the only one that's hearing all these voices, right? I mean, they're not just in my head. They're real voices that are speaking to us and telling us this is the way we're supposed to live. And the Lord says, in the midst of all that cacophony of contradictory input and advice, do you hear me? Do you know my voice? Will you follow me? And I think it's too easy for us sometimes when we look at the Bible to to miss his voice in the midst of our own talking, our own song, our own little story that we tell ourselves as we're playing in our life, and we miss that, and we miss God's voice. Mark 1.17 is very simple. When Jesus sees the first of the disciples, when he's calling them in Mark 1.17, he says, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. What does it mean to be a follower? Let's define that. Because life is a search not for a voice, but life is a search for the voice of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who has all of the answers, the one who is the only one who can give us the direction, the only one who can make sense in this cacophony of sound. He is the voice that we need to hear. We need to follow. In Luke chapter 18, look at what it says. And this is where we're going to start with this. It says, how do, how do I define follower? How do I define who a follower is, what a, what a follower does? Look at Luke chapter 18, verse 18. It says, a certain ruler asked him. I love this. The guy doesn't even get his name put in the Bible. A certain ruler means he's wealthy. means he has a lot of clout. It means he has a lot of impact in his world. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. Now get this, no one is good in the purest sense of the word. And there's no one who is perfect. That's what he's going for. There's no one who is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And what I think is interesting is, is Jesus, when he's speaking to him, jumps through some of the Ten Commandments and, and picks out a few that he's pretty sure this guy is going to say, oh, I've honored my father and my mother. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anyone. So I'm, you know, I haven't stolen anything, and nothing of any import, nothing of any value. So he was going to be pretty safe here. So Jesus gives him these commandments. And what does he say in verse 21? All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then look at what he says. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, the young man, the rich ruler, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him, and, and, and don't miss this, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye 
of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. All kinds of, and we've talked about this before, all kinds of of translations or, or interpretations of what it means for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. I'm a literalist, okay? And I believe Jesus loved to use the common vernacular of the day. A camel, anybody here ever seen a camel? How many of you have ridden a camel? If you've been with me, you've probably ridden one, okay? We rode a camel. That was an interesting thing. Now, if you took a camel and you had a needle and you tried to shove the camel through the needle, is that a tough thing to do, through the little eye? Of the, and you're laughing because it's impossible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I believe that's exactly what he's saying. This is absurd. This is how tough it is. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And I've heard all of the, you know, the people have said, well, what it was is a camel. If he would get down on his knees and he could crawl through this, this uh, gate called the eye of the needle. And that's, that's such a great great story. It's not true, but it's a great story that if a camel could just get on his knees and just kind of walk through this, there's no gate called the eye of the needle that anybody in Israel has ever heard of. Jesus is saying, you see how absurd this is? And then look at verse 27. Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. How do you define a follower. How do, you, how do you define following Jesus? I, I think there's three questions we need to ask ourselves. Number one is, do I make assumptions? Do I make assumptions about what a follower is? We all make assumptions. We assume things that not, are not necessarily true or not, not all the facts are there. And the young man does the same thing. He assumes that Jesus is a good teacher, but not necessarily God. He comes to him and he says, good teacher, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't address him. He addresses him as a rabbi or as a teacher, but he never addresses him as God. And so he makes this assumption that this good teacher is going to have one more trick up his sleeve. He's going to have one more thing that he can tell him about how to be a, a good person, to, to keep the law, to, to win his way to God. And that's a second assumption. He says, what must I do to inherit how many of you were ever born? Raise your hand if you were ever born. And you're laughing, but some of you need to understand this. When you were born, who determined your hair color, except for the women? Well, L'Oreal did that. But, I mean, for the rest of us, who, de who determined your hair color? Well, it was, it was genetic. You, in you inherited those traits. Much of your height, you inherited much of our baldness is inherited. Our eye color is inherited. What did you have to do to inherit those traits? Well, nothing. I mean, you can't be good and all of a sudden have hair. I've tried. You can't, it's not something you can do to change your eye color, except the contact lens stuff. It's not something you do. You cannot change the core of who you are. And this young man is saying, what must I do? He, he's making assumptions. You see, it's not about what you do. It's what's been done for you on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's not something that we do. He made this assumption. Do you assume that you're a follower of Jesus? This man assumed that he was a follower of Christ, of God. And you may assume it because you have, you know, the little fish emblem on the back of your car. Or maybe your parents were Christians or your grandparents were Christians. Or 
Maybe you attend church. I mean, you're here today. You assume you're a Christian because you're here today. You're, you're in church. You, you assume you're a Christian because at the end of some message at some point, the pastor said, if you want to know Christ, if you want to believe in Christ, raise your hand. And you raised your hand one time. Maybe you were baptized. You, you went to a river or a lake or a whiskey town lake or you were in this baptismal pool and you, and you were baptized. You assume you're a Christian because you've done something like that. I, I had a guy one time, I said, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? He said, I own three Bibles. What do you think? <laughs> I own three Bibles. That's not the question that I asked you. Maybe you're in the church directory. Your picture's there. You smiled. You brought your dog. That was for Vaughn and Debbie. I had somebody, literally, a couple weeks ago, I was in this conversation. I don't remember where I was waiting, store or something. And I said something about, they, they you know, talked kind of this Christian terminology. And I said, oh, are you a believer? And they said, well, I post Christian stuff on Facebook. I post Christian stuff on Facebook, so I must be a believer. What do you assume? You're in good company. Uh, by the way, there, there's a great philosopher, uh, philosopher Inigo Montoya, Montoya. He says, I do not think that means what you think it means. That's from the Princess Bride, for those of you that are keeping score. Inigo Montoya, I do not think that means what you think it means. We're in good company because the disciples even assumed things. At one point, Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, Hey, I think I found the Messiah. It's this guy from Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Look at what it says in John chapter 1, verse 46. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. They assumed that if Jesus grew up in Nazareth, that he couldn't be the Son of God. And Jesus here equates himself with God. He said, Only God is good. You, you call me a good teacher. If you really think I'm good, then are you saying that I'm God? And, and God's standard of goodness is so infinitely higher than our standard of goodness. Somebody asked me, I've, I've been trying to lose a little weight again, and somebody said, have you been good on your diet? And I said, oh, I've been really good on my diet. And then I thought back about what I'd eaten, and I said, I've been okay. You know, our, our, our standard of goodness is here, and God's standard of goodness is beyond what we can think. And what does Jesus say here? Does Jesus say salvation is hard? No. Jesus doesn't say salvation is hard. Jesus says salvation on our own is impossible. He never says that it's going to be a tough thing and if you work hard enough at it, you're going to get it. Jesus says without God, it is impossible. Have you made assumptions? I, listen, And I'm not trying to shake you up, but I think we need to look at this. Go to Matthew chapter 7. We may not get to the end of this message, but you need to see where we're going with this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is getting toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's he's told all these these things, blessed are you, blessed are those, and it it doesn't jive with what they think. And he's he's really, those that are there that day in the Sermon on the Mount, which is really a beautiful, gorgeous, green hillside just above the Sea of Galilee, been there, love standing there where Jesus gave this message in that area. And he's, and he's talked to them about all these things. And, and then at verse 21, as he's getting toward the end of this discourse, this message to them, look what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, wait a second, they've called him Master. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, you're the, you're the boss, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and look at what he, he gives three examples. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not even, were, were we not even given the ability to tell the future? Did we, not, did we not tell what God had told us? We prophesied in your name. Here's a second example. And in your name, drive out demons. Can you imagine if you stood there and you drove out a demon, you, you're there at the time of Christ, and this demon-possessed person comes, and you drive the demon out, and you say, in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone, and the demon leaves, and you walk, you know, you walk around, and you think, whoo ah, pretty powerful. That's the second example. And the third one, in your name, drive out deacons, and perform many miracles. There are times when it says he sends the disciples out and, and they speak his name and, and someone maybe who has a withered hand or who is lame or, or has some other illness, a miracle occurs and, and we know that. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew that's devastating. But look at the last phrase. Away from me, you evildoers. Folks, let's not make the assumption that you're a Christian. I'm, I'm not trying to shake the core of your faith, but I am. If, if you're strong in your faith in Jesus Christ, this should affirm it. But maybe it's time for us to, to reevaluate the relationship. Do I make assumptions? Number two, am I simply an admirer? There were there people there that day as this rich young ruler came that were admirers of Jesus. They were there. They were hanging on, and every now and then they got a meal, and, and it was a good place. And, and you know, and, and if you'd asked them, maybe they would have said, well, you know, I, I, I really like what he has to say, but it's not really that relevant to my life. I, I really like what he has to say, but I'm really not that into it. Or maybe I really like what he has to say, but it's not that important. Let me ask you a question. If, if heaven and hell are real... This is Pascal's uh, statement, really. Blaise Pascal. He says, if, if heaven and hell are real, and where you spend eternity all comes down to this question, are you a follower of Jesus Christ, is that important? Can you just be a, an admirer? And you say, well, I, I have this system worked out. I have my own system worked out. I get up every morning and I pray and, and you know, I kind of have my own thing and I'm really not involved in a church and it's not, you know, and I just have my own system. Well, the person who had the best system that I've ever seen is found in John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He was a super religious admirer. Look at what it says in John 3, 1 and 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the re most religious people alive that day. I mean, these guys, they knew the Bible inside and out. Most of the Pharisees had memorized the first five books of the Bible, not five chapters, five books. The, the Pharisees knew the Bible inside and out. There were 613 commands, and they thought they were so important that they made another 40,000 to go along with the 613, so they'd make sure that they didn't miss any of the 613. And there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was the 70, one of the top 72 of all of the Pharisees. He's at the top of the top of the top. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher 
who has come from God. He says, I'm this huge admirer of what you've been saying. And he does the same thing that the rich young ruler does. He says, basically, can you help me get a leg up in this whole religion thing? And Jesus blows him out of the water. He says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And he says, unless you're born from above. And Nicodemus says, do I need to crawl back in my mom's womb? What are you talking about, being born again? This doesn't make any sense to me. Because he's a fan. He's an enthusiastic admirer. Anybody here a fan of, of any sports team at all? Do some of you know that NFL season is going on right now? Let me define a fan, okay? A fan in the NFL is someone who loves football, and if he's a real fan and he's in the North, he goes to a football game when it gets cold with no shirt on, and he's painted his team colors. Have you seen that? The, the guys show up, and these men are there they should know better, and it's 12 degrees below zero, and they're painted green for Green Bay, or they're painted red for Kansas City, and it's snowing, and there's snow everywhere, and these guys are out there with a big KC painted across their chest. Now, they have a jersey, and it may be a signed jersey at home, but they don't wear it to the game because they're fans. And when the team wins, let's not use the Chiefs, but if the Green Bay Packers won, they would say, we won. And my question to them is, did they ever practice? Did they ever sweat? Did they ever have a 324-pound lineman take them out when they came across the line? Did they ever have to run around? Did they ever have to catch a ball? And you'd say, well, no, but that's our team. I know all the players. I know all the statistics. And, and, and obviously from the NFL, we're finding out we didn't know as much about the players as we thought we did. And who they really are. And maybe we could go to a different genre just a little bit. When Amy Grant was 18 years old, she came to Kadoka, South Dakota. We had, were there on vacation. They shut down Main Street, and we heard Amy Grant perform with just a guitar and a borrowed keyboard. It was a synthesizer. That tells you how long ago it was. And one of the kids was in a, it was in a little stroller. I don't remember if it was John or Liz, but it, I mean, it's been years and years ago. So I know Amy Grant. I've seen her in concerts, and since then, I've been to probably a half a dozen other concerts, and I've got I mean, back when you had album albums, I had the vinyl albums of Amy Grant. And I've, you know, I've even gone up and she signed stuff for me. So I know Amy Grant. Except our son John, who lives in Nashville, became good friends with her stepdaughter when she married Vince Gill. And, and the stepdaughter, Jenny Gill, John became friends with her. In fact, she hired John. And later, her husband, Josh, is now John's publisher. And Crystal, our daughter-in-law, has been to Amy Grant's home for baby showers, and we have pictures of family members sitting with Amy. Now, I know about Amy, but my son and my daughter-in-law and my granddaughter know Amy Grant. And Jesus says, do you know me? Not just about me, but do you know me? Not do you admire him, do you know him? Here's the third thing. Third question, does my faith result in action? Does my faith result in action? And this is the sticking point for a lot of Christians because, uh, you know, we understand what we're, we're talking about here, but why did Jesus tell him to sell everything and give it to the poor? Is that what we're supposed to do? Well, uh, here's the really good news for those of you who are sitting there and are kind of holding tightly onto your wallet. 
you're thinking, did God ever say to sell everything and give it to the poor for everyone? No. But God did say that everything you have is his. We don't give him 10%, a tithe of our income, because of some law. We give it because we love. I didn't take my grandkids to Target because my daughter said that, you, you know, as Papa, that's required, you have to do it. I love my grandchildren. I was thrilled. And, and you know, when I said to Kathy, said, well, this is how much the toy should be. And so Nico finds one that's just a little bit over that. And I said, don't tell, don't tell Mimi. We'll get it anyway. Because I love them. It, it's not, we're not going to be legalistic about this. And Jesus, though, says that the man loved his wealth. He believed that his wealth was a sign of God's favor. He believed that being wealthy was, meant that he was somebody in the kingdom. And so Jesus offered him an opportunity to prove his love, to prove his faith. Listen, there's no way to be a follower of Jesus Christ without it impacting your life. There's no way to follow Christ without it impacting in some of the most crucial places in your life. And how has following Jesus interfered with your life? How has it shaken your world? How, how is it that, that it's changed everything? And, and again, don't miss what I'm saying here. This is salvation by grace still, because Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Jesus is not saying if you give enough, you get into heaven. In fact, he says just the opposite of that. 150 times the New Testament says salvation is by grace. Salvation is by faith. Salvation is by believing. It's not what we do. You cannot earn your salvation. But faith changes the way you live. James 2.17, the ladies are studying James. Look at what it says. In the same way, faith by itself, he's had this whole argument about why it's important that we do something. Faith by itself, if, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not real. And you say, well, I just have a really hard time with this. Well, let's think about this for a minute. Why did God choose Noah to build the ark? Well, it's because he believed in God. If, if you look back at the story of Noah, it's, it's an incredible thing. He was a man of deep faith. By faith, Noah, when God told him to build the ark, built the ark. So if God accepted Noah by faith, what did he do? He spent 100 plus years building an ark to show that he really believed in God. He built an ark when there had never been rain. He built an ark when he'd never seen an ark or a flood or a boat. And he built an ark. Because he believed God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. We're told that in Romans. We're told that in Genesis. Abraham believed God. God said, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. He followed God. God said, follow me. He didn't tell him where he was going. Abraham followed God. But after waiting 25 years, he finally gets Isaac. What does God say to Abraham? Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. And Abram was willing to sacrifice, pulls the knife back. He's ready to go. It literally says, as he's coming forward, the angel stops his hand. I could say the same thing about Moses. Moses believed God was going to rescue Israel. He believed God was who he was, said he was. And when Moses sees God in the burning bush, God says, I want you to go and be my spokesperson. I'll be at 
somewhat reluctantly, Moses goes and he stands and he does the things that God has called him to do for 40 years. He leads the people. I could say the same thing about Daniel. We could go on and on and on. You understand, it was by faith that they were saved, but it was their actions showed what had happened. Look at it this way. If you have faith, it's your heart. It's, it's, it's what's beating. It's what's driving the blood through you. If you have a heart and it's beating blood through you, is that good physically? If you have a physical heart and it's beating blood, if you're still conscious, say yes. Okay. Is it okay if you have a heart but you don't have lungs? You can have the strongest heart in the world. If the lungs fail, you're in deep trouble. Faith is the heart. And what you do with that faith is your lungs. Here's the second part, though, and I want you to, to turn over to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. I love the story of Mark. Is that for me? Sorry. I like the ringtone, though. That's good. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. How does Christ define a follower? If we've defined it and we've seen some of the flaws in our definitions... How does Christ define it? Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. 20 uh, yeah, through 20. Very simple story. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. They're, they're commercial fishermen, and they're in the act of doing it. They throw the net out, and as they're throwing it out, literally, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men, and look at what it says, verse 18. Mark is really good at this. It says, at once, immediately, with no time lag in between, they're throwing the net out. He says, follow me. And it's as if they leave the net still in midair, and they leave everything, and they follow him. They've left their equipment. They've left. We don't even, it doesn't say they pulled the net in and they followed him. We don't know that they did. And once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. James and John, sons of thunder. These, these are two rowdy guys, okay? James and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay. Same terminology. Immediately, no time lag. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. These guys are getting ready to go out in the boat to do the commercial fishing, and they follow. Three simple observations, and then we'll go home. Number one, a follower accepts Christ's invitation. A follower accepts Christ's invitation. You see, we're under the misunderstanding, again, that we are seeking Jesus, and the truth is Jesus has always been seeking us. I'm the one who's lost. Jesus has never been lost. I'm the one who's lost and needed to be found. In the parable of the, of the hundred sheep, there's 99 sheep come back and there's one lamb who's wandered and the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one who's lost. And I'm the, the one out of the hundred that Jesus would go and rescue and bring back. These four fishermen, they didn't go out that morning thinking, man, I hope I can get closer to God. They didn't go out that morning thinking, I, I hope that I have this encounter that changes my life. They're out there to fish, and, and God shows up. There's, they're not theologians. They're not philosophers. They're not rabbis. They're not well-trained. There are blue-collar workers that God comes across, and he says, come, follow. 
Peter and Andrew and James and John leave their nets, their family, their livelihood. The invitation is to a radical commitment. We'll read about this and we'll look at this later, but in Mark 8, 34, it says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Taking up the cross, literally be willing to die for me. Here's the invitation. And Jesus only left them one, uh, one option. Later on, when he's talking to them, he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to go and prepare a place. And if I go, I will come back and get you so that where I am, you may be also. And the, one of the disciples says, Lord, we have no clue where you're going. If we knew the way, we would go. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Number two, a follower not only accepts Christ's invitation, but a follower passionately pursues Christ. They drop the net. They left their father. I mean, they're in the... They're commercial fishermen. This is their livelihood. I mean, they're on their way to work, and they get out of the car and leave the car running and go. They don't go to their desk. They don't turn on the computer. They don't do any. They leave everything and follow. And you say, well, this is radical. Yeah, it was radical. And I'm not saying you should go in and quit your job. But how would someone define a Jesus follower from looking at your life? If, if all they knew about following Christ was what they saw in you, how would they define a follower? And does it mean you lose a day to relax because you come on Sunday and you lose the best morning to sleep in on Sunday morning? Maybe you deny yourself some common pleasure and you, and you think, well, the, you know, a Christian doesn't do that. They don't drink that or they don't, you know, this is not what they do. And so that's, that's how they define a follower. Maybe if they see you, they would consider a follower of Christ to be greedy or self-centered or materialistic. We had a garage sale yesterday. My goodness. It's been three years since we've had a garage sale. It was either that or move. We don't think we're materialistic, and we had so much junk. How could that possibly be? Why does that? It must be Kathy buying it. It couldn't be me. Except more than the half of this stuff was mine. Would they say you're materialistic or angry or aggressive or prejudiced or insensitive? How do you treat the poor? How do you treat the oppressed? How do you treat the least of these? Someone who wants Christ to follow them or someone who follows Christ? You know, so many times I hear Christians pray, God, do this, and, and it's like, God, follow me because this is where I'm going. I call it bless my mess prayer. I've made a mess, and can you fix it now? And that's, that's our idea of following Christ is when we make a mess, we bring Christ in to try to clean it up. Or is it someone with a laser focused in Christ, someone who desperately hangs on every word? tries to mimic every action. When, when our oldest son, Chris, was just a little boy, we had him memorizing verses, uh, the ABCs of the Bible. All we like sheep have gone astray, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, you know, children, obey your parents. I think we threw that one in there. But the ABCs, when we got to all we like sheep have gone astray, Chris kind of changed it. He said, all we like sheep has gone astray. 
And Kathy would try to correct him. She would say, all we like sheep have gone astray. And he would say, all we like sheep has gone astray. And he could get the emphasis on the word, but he missed the word. And do we miss Jesus just about that much? We, we get the inflection, but we get the wrong words, the wrong life. Following Jesus is a relationship that defines all we are and all we do. It's not something that you do on Sunday. It is something that permeates everything that you do, day in and day out. John 6, verses 66, uh, 67 and 68. Jesus has just given an incredibly difficult message to the crowd. I mean, they have been following him. 5,000 are fed. They're into this deal. Later, 4,000 will be fed. Man, they're, you know, free lunch. This is a great deal because many of the Roman generals, when they came in to try to win the crowd over, would feed the crowds. And they're thinking, maybe he's going to be a great general. We've had this. We've had two great lunches out of this deal. And then he says, listen, this is all about dying to self. This is all about in fact, it's, you're going to understand, you're going to have to take me into your life as if you were eating flesh and drinking blood. I mean, it's that graphic, and at that point, they're all going, well, I don't think so. I was here for the free lunch, but I'm, I'm not really into this whole analogy of, you know, dying. What does he say? Because as many left, I mean, Jesus says to the twelve, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Look what Simon Peter says. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's hanging on every word. We, we, we give Peter this horrible rap about the things he's done, but he's passionately following Jesus Christ. See, we like to grade on the curve, right? Do you remember grading on the curve when you were in, in class? Didn't you, guy, you hate the guy or the girl who got an A? That, you know, she, the, she got 100 or got 99, and the next grade was an 85 or 80. It, it just threw the whole curve off. You understand what grading on the curve? The best definition of grading on the curve is, I, I read this not long ago, two guys go out into the woods and they see a grizzly bear, and the grizzly bear is coming at them, obviously ferocious, going to eat them, and the one guy goes taking, tearing off, and the guy behind him says, wait a second, don't run, you can't outrun a grizzly. And he says, I don't have to outrun a grizzly. I just have to outrun you. That's grading on the curve. I don't have to be good. I just have to be better than you. And that's not passionately pursuing Jesus Christ. Because we don't need to be in orbit around Christ. We need to be heading toward Christ. When Apollo 13 is headed back... The movie's a great movie, but the, the true story is this. When they're headed back, they're out of oxygen. They're, they're out of fuel just about. I mean, they're desperate. And normally when the Apollo uh, capsule came back, it would sweep around the Earth a time or two to kind of get into the orbit. Then it would hit the retro rockets. Then it would come back and it would fall to, to the Earth. And they didn't have that luxury. They didn't have the air, the oxygen. They did not have the fuel to do that. And so they said, there's one shot. We don't have one shot. We can't orbit. We have to go directly down or we will die. And I mean, we don't understand how desperate those guys were. Except we're just as desperate as the astronauts on Apollo 13 because we can't orbit around the earth. We don't have the time or the energy. We need to go toward Christ. That's what I mean, passionately pursue Jesus Christ. Here's the last one. The follower experiences life Christ's way. These four men had no clue 
what was going to happen to them. They didn't know what following Jesus would mean. They would glimpse his compassion. They would, they would see a, a disdain for meaningless ritual that, that was a part of their life. They would, they would see he was interested in scoundrels and, and prostitutes and those that everybody else had written off as, as unworthy. Jesus loved them. He had an intolerance for relig- religious hypocrisy. He would, he, that was the only time that he would speak roughly or strongly was against the religious hypocrisy. And, and, and they would see him walk on water. They would see him uh, turn the water into the wine. They, they would see people who had never walked get up. They would see dead men raised from the, from the dead, Lazarus and, and these others that we know about. All of these things, they're going to see that, but they're also... The best historical evidence tells us that three out of the four of them will die for their faith. And the fourth one, John is going to go into exile and and be beaten and and abused. And yeah, they're going to see the clarity of truth in in his incredible wisdom, but they're also going to see unbelievable, horrible things. And it's not just these four. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it's the, it's the hall of faith. And by faith, this person did this. But if you get to the end, it says they were sawed in two and they were imprisoned and they were destitute. And they were starving. And the writer of Hebrews says the world was not worthy of them. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought the good fight. Paul is almost to the end of his life. He says, I have finished the race I have kept the faith Paul's imprisoned Paul is going to be executed because of his faith and he says I have kept the faith followers of Jesus should never be bored this is not about ritual this is not about a system of drudgery or regulations this is not about that it's about coming to know God to living as he intended us to live, with, with both the high points and the low points, the, the mountains and the valleys, to experience the riveting sense of wonder and awe following the creator, the king of kings. I, I just don't think that we get it. I absolutely don't think we get it. And I'm, I'm I want to close the service a little differently. I want us to go ahead and pray, and then I'm going to give you the closing example of what it means to follow Christ. I want to change it up a little bit, and then we'll sing, but I want you to really, I want you to examine your heart. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment? Father, you want us just to follow Jesus. And we're so busy thinking that we're in a closer orbit than the next guy that we don't understand that somehow we're not really following him anymore. Father, we're so busy assuming things or being an admirer. We're so busy thinking that that our faith doesn't have to result in any kind of action. We can just sit and, and, and we've got this fire escape. And Lord, we know that you save by grace. It's through faith. But we don't understand what it means to follow. So, Father, I want you to examine each heart today. I'm I'm not trying to talk someone out of their salvation, Father. But make us followers of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1860s, true story, 
There was a Welsh revival that went through Wales. The, the revival was incredible. By the 1860s, the late 1860s, literally hundreds and then thousands of missionaries were sent out from this Welf, Welsh revival around the world. And, and some of those that were in the revival went to India. And particularly, there was one uh, Welsh missionary who went to a little town, a little village called Garo, G-A-R-O. It was in Assam. It was in northeast India. And this missionary didn't have a lot of success. We don't even remember his name, but we know he was there. And in one town, he gave the gospel repeatedly for weeks. And, and one family, a, a husband and a wife and two sons, two little boys, accepted Christ. And you need to understand, in northeast India at this particular time, they were very aggressive. They were headhunters. There were all kinds of horrible things going on. A lot of inter-town rivalries where they would go and they would fight each other and kill each other. And, and they were incredi incredibly bloodthirsty. And, and they always attributed all of their wins to their gods. And so when somebody came in talking about a new god, it really bothered them. And this one family, when the, the Belgian missionary went on to the next town to tell them about Jesus, the chief called the whole town, some eight, nine hundred of the, the people in this little town together, and he gathered them all together and called a conclave. And he, and he brought the family to the middle and he said, listen, we don't need a false god. We don't need some god from across the sea, some god who, who died 2,000 years ago. You can renounce this god or we will kill you. father held on to his wife and his two sons. He said, we've decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. And the chief was furious. And in just a moment, he slit the two throats of the two sons. The two little boys slumped to the ground. And he says, you renounce Jesus Christ right now, or I will kill your wife before your eyes. And the man said, though I'm all alone and though no one else may ever go with me, I have to follow Jesus Christ. And the chief uttered this huge yell and plunged his knife into the heart of the woman and she fell to the ground by her two sons and was dead. The man was devastated at the loss of his family and the chief came up to his face. He says, you Renounce Jesus Christ now. And the man looked at him. And the chief said something came over his face. And he stood tall and strong. He says, the cross before me, everything else behind me. There's no turning back. And the chief killed the man. About a week later, the chief had not slept for many days, and he called everyone together. And he, sees, he said, I need to send some of the young warriors, I need to send some of these people out to find this man who told them about Jesus. There's something about someone who believes so much in a man who died 2,000 years. There must be some truth in it, and I have decided to follow Jesus. And they brought the missionary back, and in three weeks, there were over 600 believers in Jesus Christ in the town of Gero. And today, if you go to northern India, there are more Christians in Assam than anywhere else in India. And the interpreter who came back with a Belgian missionary heard this story, 
And he took an Indian tune that they all knew, that they had sung many times, called the Assam. And he wrote a little song, and it goes like this. I want you to stand. <laughs> 